teaching practices have gradually evolved as we've learned more about how humans learn. From one year to the next, these changes may appear small, but the cumulative effect is profound. In this episode, we reflect back on the changes that have occurred in higher ed during our careers. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guest today is Todd Zakrizek, and I am with Todd here in Durham, North Carolina. Todd is an Associate Research Professor and Associate Director of a Faculty Development Fellowship at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is also the Director of four Lilly Conferences on Evidence-Based Teaching and Learning. Todd is the author of many superb books and has published four books in the past four years. His most recent book is a fifth edition of Teaching at Its Best, a book he co-authored with Linda Nielsen. Welcome back, Todd. Well, thank you, John. Well, this is exciting. And Rebecca may be a long ways away, but I have never been arm's length from a person who interviewed me for a podcast before. Isn't that cool? And we've only done that before, either at a conference or at Oswego. I feel very special. Well, we can celebrate with our teas. So today's teas are... (laughs) I'm drinking a peach mango that I got from some teas that John brought, which are fantastic. John, how about you? I am drinking a Tea Forte black currant tea which I brought from Oswego, in a new mug that was given to me by Claire McNally when she visited this area last week. Love Claire. She's fantastic. And it has kangaroos on it. Yeah. I can't see it. Let me see it, John. Oh, that's a cool mug. It's a good mug. I got a mug from our university, but I didn't realize I should have brought it. So I feel bad about that. But it is a podcast, so I didn't think about what it looked like. That's true. We generally don't do a lot of visuals on here. And I have a blue sapphire tea in my T-Rex mug. Well, that's a nice mug. We've invited you back to talk a little bit about how some of the changes you've observed in college teaching across your career have impacted how you teach today. When did your work in higher ed begin? Actually, it started when I was a graduate student. So back in 1987. So there's no reason to try to figure out how old I am now. I've basically specifically dated myself here. I started teaching. I got to teach a introduction to statistics course, and I had so much fun that I taught again the following year. And by the time I left my graduate program, I had taught more courses in that program than any other graduate student had ever taught in the psychology department there. I really loved teaching right from the beginning. And from the beginning, very concerned about student learning and just getting rolling. What was it about the teaching, Todd, that really got you hooked? Just watching the students. It's the same thing as it is today. When you have an individual who's struggling with something and suddenly they get it and you realize that they may eventually get it on their own, but you realize how much you've helped them to move that along very quickly and facilitating the learning process. I just really love that. It doesn't mean I was fantastic at it, but I really did love it. Sometimes the things we love the most are things that we're not great at to start with. (laughs) That's true. My experience was similar, actually. I started in 1980 with a course where I had a fellowship, so I didn't have to teach, but there was a sudden shortage in the department and they asked me to fill in. And I was planning to go on into research, but it was just so much fun teaching that I've never stopped. I taught as a graduate student too, and taught the whole time I was there, but I started a little bit later in 2003. All right. So that was a couple of years later. Just a couple. Yeah. I had kind of a funny start. I will mention it when I first started that after the first semester of teaching, my students got almost all A's and B's. And the department chair called me in and he said, I'm not going to have you teach any more courses. And I said, why not? And he said, well, you give grades away like candy. We have to have better standards than that. And I said, well, how are you basing that? And he says, well, you know, we looked at the grade point averages. And I said, well, how about if I bring in my final exam and just walk through it? And then you can tell me how I could change to be more rigorous. And so it was great. I showed it to him at the beginning and like the bottom of the first page, the students had to calculate a statistical value. Then I had them explain how they came about that number. But if they had used a different test, how might it been inappropriately found and what the interpretation might have been based on the fact that they had done it wrong with a different test. 
I thought it was important for them to understand how these things can change. The chair said, I can't believe you have your students in the first class actually talk about various tests like that. And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. Then we turned a page and he says, you did non-parametric tests? I said, well, yeah, we did parametric tests, but then I thought they should know the equivalent. And he said, we never do that. And then he turned the last page. He said, you haven't do a two-way ANOVA. You're only supposed to go through one-way ANOVA. I said, yeah, but we'd finished everything and we still had a week left. And I figured I might as well introduce the next concept to them. And so I showed them how to do a two-way ANOVA and they ended up with all A's and B's. So if you could help me in how to push their grades down and give them lower grades, I'm perfectly happy to do that. And he then set me up with two courses the next semester. But it's that reliance on the teaching evaluations is always funny. Todd, it's just funny as we've gotten to know you through the podcast. (laughs) It sounds so perfect that that was your first experience. (laughs) Yeah, I've lived my entire career on the edge. (laughs) (laughs) And those sort of arguments, though, are still occurring in a lot of classes today about rigor and the need to keep grades lower. Yeah. They're less severe than they were a few years ago. But also looking at how well a person's teaching based on student evaluations. I mean, we should be looking at authentic assessment. Some things have changed through the years. Some things have not changed through the years. Well, technology is one of those things that has changed. Whoosh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what tech was like in the classroom when you first started and how it's evolved a bit? Yeah. I know you have some listeners who have been teaching for a very long time. So those of you who have been teaching for like 30 to 40 years, just stop and think back about what it was like when we first started. For those of you who have been teaching like Rebecca since 2003, let's just mention that technology back then was mostly pens and chalk and chalkboards. So back then, of course, there's technology. There's always technology, but we were using overhead projectors. This was long before the internet came along to really be used in the classes. LCD projectors were not out yet. Canvas, Blackboard, Sakai, all those learning management systems were not around. We didn't have any of the ways to email individuals. You couldn't email your students back then. And there was no chat GPT to write your papers for you. But there was calculators. That could do all the work for you. Yes, but this is the cool part. Back when I started teaching statistics, and I'm glad you mentioned the calculators, huge debate back then was whether or not the students should calculate the statistical values by hand using the calculator because computers had just come onto the scene and we could punch the data into a computer and have a computer run an ANOVA for you. Should you calculate it by hand? Should you run it through the computer? And there was a huge camp that said you should do it by hand or you will never understand a statistical value. And I said, you know, we've got the technology there. Why don't we have the students use the computer to do the mundane stuff? And we'll have more time to talk about the theoretical and the important implications. But even back then, we were having the discussions about whether to use the technology at hand or not. Oh, and by the way, we're also hanging grades on doors. So we would figure out the grades, we'd tack it to the door, and then the students who want to know what their grades were for the class would swing by and look at the door. And they were sorted alphabetically to make it easier for people to find where yeah. they were in the grade list. Yeah, it was great. We listed them according to their social security number, <laughs> which was a little different back then. And yeah, we actually did that back then. But as John pointed out, they were listed by numbers, so nobody knew whose number went with whom, except surprisingly, they were alphabetical on the door. So not only could you figure out Armstrong's exam score, you'd get Armstrong's social security number as well. Bad times have changed. And it was also back in the day of dittos and mimeos as well, which was the only way of disseminating information on paper. This is so much fun. We'll get to some real meat of this thing, but the walk down memory lane has some fun stuff too. The dittos I remember dittos just for the record. Okay. Yes. So you probably remember if you ditto just before class and you handed out in class, the students would all pull the ditto up to their face so they could smell the ditto fluid and they got that smell. I was running dittos one time in the graduate student office and I noticed when I looked down because it ran out of fluid and I had to put some more fluid in, I looked down and I noticed that the floor was kind of eaten away by this ditto fluid. And then this is the best part. About a month later, I was digging for something in the closet and I found extra tiles. And I thought they should put these tiles down to replace the ones that are all eaten. And on the side of the box, it said these tiles were long lasting and durable, reinforced with asbestos. So the ditto fluid was eating through asbestos tiles. That's some strong stuff. 
make it a little bit more friable so that we yeah. disseminate in the air nicely. Well, there had to be something to help the faculty members who were running all their own dittos to not mind doing it. And the one way of doing it is to have them use ditto fluid because I'll tell you, you may not have liked it when you started, but by the end, it was all right. <laughs> It's funny that we're taking this walk down memory lane because on our campus, I was in our historic lecture classroom today in Sheldon Hall. What are some of the other changes that have occurred and how have they influenced how we teach? Yeah, so it's interesting. I did the walk down memory lane and we were chatting about this stuff. It's all fun. But thinking about how the changes have taken place, I think that's really important. So there have been massive changes. I think that we tend to forget. It's so easy to communicate with students now. Heck, people are texting now so that you can text back and forth with students. But think about how that has transcended or gone through time. There was a time when I would have to call and leave a message for a student on an answering machine, and then they would call back, and we would try to find a time that we could talk on the phone. If we wanted to have a conversation, I could either leave a note for the student or I could call and leave a message that says, please come and see me after class. So even having a conversation with a student was difficult. Then it became easier with email because you could start emailing back and forth. And now we have Zoom. And the equity and the way that this has changed, just think about the difference of this. If I'm leaving a message for a student, they may not even have an answering machine if they're living off campus with limited means back then. So even getting in touch with a student would be challenging. Now I can have a Zoom conversation with a student who doesn't have to hire a babysitter, who doesn't have to find reliable transportation, who doesn't have to drive across town and burn gas, and to do all of those things that it would take to have a 15-minute conversation that in the past would have been really hard and even four or five years ago would have been challenging. The grades. Why in the world would a person have to leave? I was teaching in very northern Michigan. There were days that the wind chill was 75 degrees below zero, and students would leave their dorm rooms and walk across campus to see a grade on the door. It's actually physically dangerous. And now we have learning management systems. We can post things for students. Interlibrary loan used to take weeks to get a document that you can now go on and get. People can lament all of these technological changes at times, but we're actually creating more and more equity within the higher education system as we make certain things easier. Not saying that we're anywhere near an equitable system yet, but we're moving in a really good direction. And a lot of those changes are helping us to get there. I'm thinking about all the times when you had to go to the door or meet after class. It really assumes that students are a certain kind of student. They're full time. They have time. And our students now are working (laughs) and they're juggling a lot of different schedules and things. Yeah. And I mean, we want to be careful too. And I agree with you 100%, but they were juggling back then too. But some of the things we were doing, for instance, I taught a night class. Now I would probably suggest if I was going to teach a class from 7 to 10 p.m. that I would teach it through Zoom because there's a lot of reasons that it's good to do. But I had students that I noticed in class would very quickly at the end of class would start talking to other students. And I couldn't figure out what was doing because a lot of buzzing and stuff. And what I found was that there were certain students who were uncomfortable, and we were on a very safe campus, but they were uncomfortable walking to their car at 10 o'clock at night. So I started saying to the students, hey, I'm going to park a car. And when we showed up, there were quite a few cars there, but I'll be under the second light. I drive a little red Chevette, not a Corvette, a Chevette, but I'll have my car there. If you want to park near me, we can walk out together. And there were students that were not paying attention to almost any of the class because they were fearful of how they were going to get to their car safely. When you think about Zoom and stuff, it's even safety factors. I would never have a review session now like I used to at 8 to 9 p.m. the night before the exam because I'm exposing people to potentially dangerous situations. Now we'd have Zoom sessions. But I could tell you 40 years ago, there was no even concept of what Zoom would be and how it would work. Even Star Trek didn't have stuff like that. And there was also, besides the inequity associated with people who were working, many campuses had a lot of commuting students who could not easily get back to campus for office hours. Or if they were just taking classes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and your office hours was on a Tuesday, they'd have to come in that extra day arranging childcare or their work to be able to fit that into the schedule. Yeah, it really did start to change that system. So we got a little bit more equity. And like you were saying, too, the the commuting students, the part-time students, the students taking distance courses. When I first started teaching, I was writing, oh my word, remember the correspondence courses? You mail away and get a packet of material. You take a test at a local library. And they talked about distance education being not as good as on campus, but at least better than nothing. 
And now we're finally getting to a system where we can stop assuming that those folks who are coming in for part-time courses and stuff are just getting something better than nothing. They're actually getting something similar to full college courses, which some of those online courses are actually as good or better than college courses that are on campus. But all that's changing with the technology. It's crazy. And there's a lot of research that supports that Mm -hmm. in terms of the relative learning gains with online and face-to-face, as well as hybrid courses, which seem to outperform others in a few meta-studies that have been done. But those were options that just weren't available back then. And the early online courses were often designed to be replicas of face-to-face classes, and they probably didn't work quite as well, but we've learned since then, which brings us to the issue of research. During the time you've been teaching, there's been a lot of research on teaching and learning. While some of it was taking place, it wasn't very widely disseminated to faculty. Yeah, that is true, too. It's so much easier to get technology out. It's easier to gather data. It's easier to write it up. It's easier to edit it. So all of those types of things that are happening now that couldn't happen before. And as a result, we're learning a lot more about how people learn. You know, the book I did on the new science of learning, looking at a lot of the ways that students learn and Part of it's just the ease of getting to information, but also part of it's just being able to investigate how people process information. I used to teach introductory psychology back then. We would talk about the stages of sleep and nobody really knew, for instance, what REM sleep was about. We knew that you had to have it or else it caused some problems. Deep sleep we knew was important. We now have indications that deep sleep for consolidation is necessary for semantic memory. If your sleep is interrupted, you can get eight hours of sleep. But if you don't get deep sleep, the information doesn't get consolidated. Procedural memory, how to give shots and kick balls and do anything procedurally, looks like it's more solidified during REM sleep. So again, the different types of sleep are associated with us learning long-term different types of information. We never knew that before all this technology was running around. In fact, back then, I got to say, I remember from my intro psych class being told that you were born with a certain number of neurons. And as you live through life, neurons would die. And if you killed them by drinking or doing something like drugs or something, they were gone forever and you would never get more. And if you broke a connection, it was broken forever. That's just simply not true, but it's what we thought back then. So technology has really allowed us to look better at how people learn, different ways of helping them to learn, and different ways they can even study. By the way, before we move on, we now have this physiological demonstration that staying up all night and cramming the night before the test, even though it gets you slightly higher grades on the test, we now know that because the information is not consolidated, that it won't be there a week later or two weeks later. So we've always told students you shouldn't do it, but now we can actually show them why it doesn't work. And the LMS itself has offered a lot of ways of giving more rapid feedback to students with some automated grading with some things to give them more low-stakes testing opportunities. And those were things that we just couldn't easily do back when you started teaching. No, John, that's a really good one. And we know that one of the most consistent findings right now in all of learning and memory stuff is that the more often you do something, the easier it becomes, long-term potentiation, which means the more frequently you retrieve information from your long-term memory, the easier it is to retrieve. And just like you'd mentioned, we can now do LMS systems that are set up so that you can do practice quizzes. You could do dozens or hundreds of practice quizzes and keep pulling that information out over and over and over again. That was just not possible before this. And so the LMS helps with that. It helps by giving feedback, really good feedback, so that students know what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. And it helps faculty members to design feedback specifically for certain types of projects. And so that I can more easily give more feedback without spending a lot more time on it. So LMSs have done a tremendous amount of work. And that's not even mentioning the fact that you can have all of the LMS systems loaded with the content so students can log in, get their information without leaving their house. If there's fiscal challenges with your class, you can put in articles. The students may not have to buy a book. They can read the articles. And so we've got students who are able to come to classes because they can afford to be there. By the way, I remembered being on a committee when I was a graduate student, and we were looking at financial aid and different financial systems. And I remembered asking the chief financial officer, I said, what increase in tuition does there need to be before you start to see students drop off because they can't afford to be here? And this was about 40 years ago, but he said $100 for a year. If they have to pay $100 this year more than last year, some students won't come back. 
if we look at the price of textbooks now, textbooks can cost $400. So a book like that is definitely going to make a difference between some students being able to take a class or not. So LMS systems make this possible. And they also make it easier to share OER resources that don't have any cost for students or some less expensive adaptive learning platforms, giving all students at first day access. I remember not so long ago when I was still using textbooks in some classes, students would wait several weeks before they got that book. And that put them at a severe disadvantage. And the people who were being put at disadvantage were generally the students who came in with the weakest backgrounds because they came from lower resourced school districts. Yeah, if they had the resources, they would have the better background foundational material, but they'd be able to buy the books. And you mentioned OERs. So open educational resources are really another thing that are really valuable because back then, before the technology, you couldn't produce something that would be readily available like throughout the world. And so this project that's going on now where they're doing introductory level books in all the different disciplines, you can get an OER, introductory psychology textbook that students can log in and read. None of that was possible before the technology. So even the creation of OERs has changed so much. Well, speaking of digital materials, libraries have changed significantly too over time from having completely physical collections and interlibrary loans and things that take a lot of time to having a lot of digital resources, which changes access to research and materials that you can populate into your classes, but also can aid students in the work that they're doing. Can you talk a little bit about the change in libraries and how that's impacted how you've taught? Yeah, you know, libraries have been fascinating to watch over the last 40 years because it used to be the biggest challenge librarians had before them was which books to put on the shelves because there was a finite amount of shelf space and there was lots and lots of books. And so that was the big thing. We used to take out journals that weren't used very much to make room for other journals. Through time, little by little, they started digitizing all that stuff. And I can remember chatting with librarians. One conversation I had was back around 2001. I said, it's going to be interesting because there's going to come a day where there'll be no books in the library. And the dean of the library says, well, there's always going to be books. I said, not always, potentially. But even if we reduce them, I said, what is your foresight? How is the library going to change? And so he had a couple of ideas. But what it basically boiled down to our conversation is, I always felt like a library was like the brain of the campus. It had the books and it had all of the information that you could go and get. As the books left and things were diversified in a way that you could find this stuff, you could get all the information right from your dorm room or from your apartment. When the internet came along, you could get anything you needed. Then the library was still a physical space that was in the middle of campus. And what it should become is a learning commons a place where people go to share and to learn from one another. And I think that's what's really changed is individuals still just pile into libraries and use the space, but they use it in different ways. They go there to meet other individuals to work, which they did before, but they took away that aspect of going there for the book part. And it meant all of those shelves got emptied and they started pushing them out. And you can go into libraries right now that have very few shelves, but they have webcams, they have smart boards, they have spaces where folks can plug in their computers and share with one another. They've got screen set up so that you can project and have students sitting around a table. They've got Google Glass set up. All of these types of things that bring students together to use technology to learn from one another. And they have cafes to help support that to make it easier for people to gather. Yeah, you could swing by and get a cup of tea. It's funny, even when I was in high school, My sister and I would rely on going to the library to have access to a computer so we could even type a paper because we didn't have one at home. And that kind of place of having the technology started a long time ago, but it's amped up quite a bit over the last 20 years. Yeah, and I agree completely. And the computers that are there, I mean, even right now with the books dissipating, there are still large numbers of computers. And oftentimes there'll even be an area in the library that's carved out with really high end computers. But it gives students an opportunity to go. We make this assumption that everybody has a computer and they don't, but libraries give them that opportunity. Yeah, for those students working on smartphones or Chromebooks, it gives them access to all the tools that students with two or three thousand or four thousand dollar computers. Yes, because smartphones can work for lots of things, but they're a little tough to write a paper on. When I started teaching and probably when you did, too, the predominant mode of instruction which actually still is often the predominant mode of instruction in many departments, was lecture. 
that's changed quite a bit since then. Could you talk a little bit about the shift from lecture-based courses to courses that involve much more active learning activities? Yeah, or they just involve a lot more of everything. The concept of flipped classrooms, which was almost impossible 30, 40 years ago because you really couldn't get the information to the students. Yes, it was kind of possible, but if it was hard now, it was really hard back then. But the ability to get information out to students that they can read it before they come to class. But coming back to the lecture, so I'm going to take this moment, and those of you who know me know that I'm going to do this, is that we still have no evidence that lectures are bad, but there's something that we need to really keep in mind. I think this is vital. I do think it's important for us to be able to talk about buzz groups and jigsaws and fishbowls and lectures and Socratic lectures, discussion lectures, all those different methodologies out there so that we know what we're talking about when we chat with one another. But I do think it's time that we stop talking about lectures being more effective than one thing or fishbowls being more effective than something else and look at the components of what is valuable in a learning experience. And a good reference for that is a book on dynamic lecturing, which you oh, happen to be a co-author of. That is true. In fact, that there's the dynamic lecturing, and then there's a chunk in that about the new science of learning, and then there's a whole chapter in that about teaching at its best, because that's a good point, John. Thank you. It's almost like you try to slip it in everywhere you are. Because the research, people keep talking about one methodology being better than another. Here it is, folks. You can be a hideous lecturer. You can be a phenomenal lecturer. And if you're a hideous lecturer, you're not going to learn anything. If you're a phenomenal lecturer, students will learn from you, but they won't learn all the time. It depends on some student factors. I've actually been exposed to group work and flipped classrooms that were awful. And so that concept is we start thinking about, and this is why it's going to come back to the technology, we think about the elements that need to be there that are necessary for learning to take place. I'm just going to do this because it's not the topic. I'll make it very brief. Is Let's just go with three things. If you don't have your attention as a teacher, if my learners aren't attending to what I'm saying, if they're on their phone or thinking about bacon, then they can't process what I'm presenting. And if you're having a think pair share, if they're not attending to the person they're sitting next to, you have to have attention. Number two, they have to have some value. If I'm hearing somebody or I'm reading something and this has no value to me, it's really hard to get it into your long-term memory and to learn it. And number three, I have to have a clue of what's happening. I got to understand some aspects. Now, if we think about attention, value, and understanding, now we can flip back to the technology. This is why gaming works. Gaming draws the attention. It increases the value because you want to win the game and has understanding. We have all played games. You open up the old board games and now it's digital where you don't have a clue what the game is. It's like if you advance a player four pieces and the opponent advances five pieces, you have to go back three spaces unless it's a Tuesday. When those instructions are that complicated, you don't understand. So we can use technology to help with attention. We can use technology to help with the value of what's going on. And we can use that technology to help with understanding. Those are things that were very difficult before. And they allow us to do things like a mini lecture and then shift over to an active learning exercise and then say, take all this information and create a Zoom session tomorrow that we'll go over it again. So the technology has really helped us to be able to do all of these things to get at the core of learning topic I barely care about. (laughs) That's an important one because people often see it as this binary issue where you lecture or you use active learning. And there are some really effective ways to combine them. And in fact, in that book on dynamic lecturing, it was suggested that lecture can be more important in introductory courses when students don't have as much of a knowledge base. You're absolutely right. Discovery learning is a really great way to learn if you've got a lot of time. I can just put you into a room with some other people and say, here's some data and here's some things we need to know. Go. And if you don't have any foundational knowledge at all, it takes forever to figure it out. You go online, you don't know what to look for. I could do a five-minute lecture, and at the end of five minutes, set it up and say, now go and work with your neighbors. In fact, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have you each work in small groups in class. I'm going to open up a Padlet. At each table, I want you to go in and add your information or put it into the column that corresponds with your group number. As an instructor, I can watch everything develop in front of me while I'm in the room. I can look at my laptop and see it and walk over to a table and say, looks like you're struggling a little bit. I've lectured. I've put them into small groups. I've had them use technology. I've created a little bit of competition on who can come up with what. And I've had a way for me to monitor it and give them feedback. That is so different than what teaching used to look like. So pulling it all together, that's what we do. 
the tools to be able to monitor have been really helpful in my own teaching and being able to get a better pulse on what's going on and get a nice overview and then be more targeted in how to interact with small groups rather than just kind of wandering around more aimlessly like I think I did initially. <laughs> yeah, and this is all going to be great until we get our cognitive load headbands that I'm waiting to be developed. So anybody who's listening, take this idea, run with it. You can make a bazillion dollars and then take me out to dinner or something. I want a headband and the headband has a light and it measures brainway activity. And then as I'm teaching, if you start to be a little bit like it's a little bit too much, you're moving out of that zone of proximal development, the light turns from green to a yellow. And then when it hits red, it's like when you're trying to put together an Ikea bookcase and someone comes by and says, what do you think of this? And you say, I'm working on an Ikea bookcase right now. That's shutting down with that red light, telling you that's going to be the technology we'll want next. Would be so helpful. (laughs) You could actually look and see somebody else's zones of proximal development and their cognitive load. Which, by the way, there's a little party game that they'll do periodically at parties. It's like, if you were a superhero, what would you want your superpower to be? And I was in a room one time and one person said they wanted to fly and somebody else said that they wanted to be invisible, which real quickly in my head, I'm thinking, what could you possibly gain that wasn't illegal or creepy if you're invisible? So aside from that, transporting and everything else, and they got to me and I said, I want to be able to see people's zones of proximal development. That were my superpower. I'd be the best teacher. I bet that went over really well at those parties. Yeah, my friends all said, you are amazingly smart and quite insightful. They use different words, but that's what I heard. (laughs) They didn't start with, what is that? (laughs) As soon as I start talking, most of my friends just shake their head and drink whatever beverage they have near them. So, yeah, it's good times, good times. They're all impressed. They don't say it all the time, but I know they are. I think one of the things that often happens with technology is that it allows us to get things quickly and move through things quickly. But sometimes, as you just noted, learning doesn't happen quickly. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about speed and the difference between maybe not having all the technology and all the things really quick versus maybe now where we have it at our fingertips, but do we always want it at that speed. So there's another study that I'm waiting to see. This is an easy study, folks. Somebody can run this one quickly. We all know that students are listening to any recorded lectures, recorded material that they have to watch. 1.7 is about the best speed that we tend to see people listening. 2.0 is a little bit fast for some folks. 1.0 is like normal speed. That's no good. Too slow. So what I'm curious about is the space between words and between sentences that our brains, because they move so fast, we can listen faster than somebody can talk. And we have all this other stuff going on is I can be thinking and processing while you're talking to me. But if I bump that up to one seven, I think we close the gaps and I hear it a lot faster. But what I don't think is happening is the cognitive processing while I'm listening, the active listening component to it. So I think technology can create concerns in those directions. And students who do try to process material too fast, we'll wait and see. And that's especially important in flipped classrooms where students do watch these videos outside. One of the things I've been doing with those, though, is embedding questions in a video. So they can watch them as quickly as they want, but then they get these knowledge checks every few minutes. And then if they find they're not able to answer it, they may go back and get their attention back and watch that portion again. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to go. Edpuzzle is kind of a fun Mm -hmm technology to use. I don't know if that's the one used. I'm using PlayPosit, which is a bit more expensive. It works beautifully. I love it. They did just double the price this year, though. (laughs) Yeah, so it was bought by a new company. This is the tricky spot now as the prices are going up. You know, inflation is a terrible thing to waste. Anytime somebody can raise prices now, it's like, ooh, inflation. So, you know, prices double. Inflation's 8% with runaway. Now it's back down around three. But when inflation was 8%, they'd double the price and say, hey, we've got to. But yes, it's some of them are expensive. There's lots of things that are less expensive. Oftentimes we pay for functionality to help us. But the freemiums kind of things, the stuff that's inexpensive, I just want to let everybody out there know just about anything you want to do in class or can think about doing it, there's a way to do it for either free or probably under $100 a year, which I know $100 can be expensive for some people. It's about eight bucks a month. And so things like Padlet that I think might be up around 140 now, so maybe $12 a month can change how much time you spend doing things and how much time students are. But yeah, I love the embedded questions to help slow things down. I think that the cognitive load can happen really quickly if we're piling lots of information in, but not always providing the time to process and use that information in some way. 
and the kind of activities that you were talking about or knowing when everybody's red light is going off in the class. Or when people try to do multiple things. I mean, now you've got the technology around. So if students are trying to listen to an assignment while they're texting their friend and have a TV on, I mean, we're living in an age where there is a lot going on and people believe they can process lots of things. Evolution doesn't happen quite that fast. And so I think we got to be careful with that one. Well, another thing that's happened is back when you and I both started teaching, the only way students generally communicated their learning was either on type pages or on handwritten notes. Now we have many more types of media that students can use. And also we've seen a bit of an expansion of open pedagogy. How does that help students or how does that affect student learning? Wow, that's really changed a lot as well. Blue books. Remember the blue books? I think they still sell blue books in the library. They may cost more than the, I think it was eight cents when I started. But the concept of writing things down, you turn them into the faculty member, the faculty member would grade them and turn them back. One of the big things that I caught years and years ago was so much wasted cognitive energy in terms of what they produced. I'd read a paper from a student and think, this is amazing, and no one will ever see it. It was written for me, I graded it, and now it's done. I think the technology has changed so many things. One of the biggest things I would encourage all the listeners, any faculty member out there, is whenever possible, create something that will take the students' work, the things that they're doing, and use it to make society better. It's not that hard. There's assignments that you can do on Wikipedia. Anybody who wants to complain about Wikipedia, if you don't like it, I'm going to go back to uh, Tim Sawyer, who is a faculty member of mine. My very first time I ever did TA work, I was complaining about some students, and he said, you can complain three times. And after you've complained three times, either stop talking, he was a little bit ruder about that, or do something about it. Just shut up or do something. And so I complained about Wikipedia for a while that it wasn't all that effective. And I thought, well, if I don't like the page on cognitive load on Wikipedia, I could give an assignment of my cognitive psych class to go on to Wikipedia and fix it. And so you can have Wikipedia assignments. There's so many things you could do. Here's one for you. If you're doing one on communication, you could have your students go and take pictures or short videos somewhere on campus of something that's meaningful to them and then jot down why it's meaningful take that compilation of stuff and send it over to the office on campus that does publicity. What better way of drawing students to campus than to have all of these students that have said, I love sitting by the pond because. And in the past, we would have had students write a paper about someplace on campus that you think is effective, put it in the blue book, we would grade it, we'd turn it back to the students, and that is a waste of possibilities. And so I think we do have lots of ways that we can get the students involved in helping through technology. One of our colleagues in SUNY, Kathleen Gradle, had an assignment for a first-year course where the students went out, took pictures, geocoded it, and added it to a map layer that was then shared with other first-year students about useful resources on campus and their favorite spots on campus, which is another great example of that type of authentic learning. Yeah, so for the authentic learning, there are just so many possibilities because of the technology. If anyone doesn't have ideas, ask deans, ask the provost, ask the president on your campus, like what kind of information would be helpful, either for the next round of accreditation or for just helping the campus. And we can design those things. Another one I did was we took students to the museum. We'd go to the museum. Almost any class could kind of find some way to tie museums in. And through the museum, not only would they write stuff that the folks at the museum who did curation would help use, but also just helping the students to see how issues from the museum, how artifacts and things could be used in their own life to better understand. When I first started teaching, community-based learning was popular in FAD at the time. And I think having the experience of being a student in a class like that, but then also a faculty member teaching classes like that has really informed the kinds of projects that I do. Maybe they're not always community-based learning, but they're often community-oriented, whether it's the campus or even the surrounding community that the campus is situated in to help students get connected. There's so many nonprofits that need partners and love. There's always a project that can be done. There is. And I used to be a director for a service learning component of the campus. And yeah, there's just so much out there that we can do to help others. And students always had such a strong connection and they didn't want to fail because other people were depending on them. And so there was a real investment in the work that they did on projects like that. I will admit that I've never experienced it myself. I've never even heard of anybody that if the students are doing some kind of authentic learning, that the authentic learning is then used to help somebody else. 
I have never heard students say, what a waste of time, or I hate that class, or those assignments are just busy work. They've never used those terms. One common sort of project is to create resources that could be shared with elementary or secondary school students Mm -hmm. in the disciplines. And again, they can see the intrinsic value of that. Yeah. Students could write short manuals on how to learn and then pass that as on to the first year students. And so upper division students could be helping the lower division students because not everybody can get a copy of the New Science of Learning, third edition. Available from? <laughs> available. It used to be Stylus. Since Stylus was sold to Rutledge, now it's available at Rutledge. <laughs> Given the historical background that we've walked through today, what if we think about the future Where do you see technological changes or learning theory changes impacting the future of higher ed? Yeah, we're living at an interesting time. I like to point out to folks that when you go back to Socrates, Plato kind of time, there was a thought that if you wrote something down, it would weaken the mind. So we shouldn't write things down. Luckily, some individuals wrote things down or we never would have known. We've gone through several iterations of those kinds of things. Samuel Johnson, I believe it was, who said, with the ready availability of books, teachers are no longer needed. If you want to learn something, you could go get a book on it. Well, that was a couple of hundred years ago, and we still have faculty members. We have students writing things down. We're reading. I don't imagine how you could teach without writing things down and having books. The internet came along, as we were discussing earlier. While we were teaching, we watched the internet show up. And there were people who said, well, with the internet, there's going to be no need for teachers anymore because students can get whatever they want. I can't imagine teaching without the internet right now. So as we've gone through each of these iterations, there's been this fear that maybe we'd be supplanted by some technology followed by, I don't know how I'd work without that. It's a little trickier now because with generative AI, we're talking about not just something being available, but actually creating something. I don't know what that's going to look like, but there's some real possibilities that the generative AI chat GPT could do things like help students who have writer's block get started. And that's an individual that maybe could produce something really cool, but just can't get started. I didn't publish my first book until about seven or eight years ago because I'm one of those individuals who has a terrible time from a blank screen. I just have a terrible time with that. And so now I don't use ChatGPT to actually write anything significant, but I will tell you that I will use it for the first paragraph. That's all. Just one paragraph. And then I completely rewrite that and there's no actually trace of it, but it's something that gets me going. So can we count on more than a book a year going forward? No, (laughs) no, 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 you can't. That's so exhausting. (laughs) But the concepts that will help students that can do that, I think that's going to be helpful for them. So there'll be a type of student who couldn't have produced before, but now can. We are definitely going to run into some challenges, though, with students who are going to just use generative AI and use artificial intelligence to actually create and to hand something in instead of doing the work. So I do think we're in a challenging time right now, and I wouldn't make light of that. There's actually something that I find fascinating from this. Right now, more than ever before, we can actually have artificial intelligence create something for us, especially in higher education. This hasn't been done before. The tricky thing is that we were the ones to be able to make that possible because we learned things. If we let a machine do that work for us, we're not going to be put into the situation or our students coming along will not be put into a situation where they're intelligent enough to do the things that need to be done when they need to be done. And so I do think we're facing a real dilemma right now. If my students, for instance, always use some artificial intelligence to create a paper and hand it in, if I can't catch it, they may end up with an A in that portion of the class. But there's going to come a day when they're going to have to write something or be able to read something and tell if it's written well. And so I'm a little bit nervous. We're entering a phase where by bypassing some cognitive processing that needs to be done, we may be limiting what we're able to do in the future. Wrapping this up, though, I don't want to be the person who says, if you use a calculator, you'll never understand the statistical test. So I don't know where the balance is, but I do think we're going to have to have decisions coming up that we've never had before. Generative AI is drawing on that wealth of knowledge that has been produced. And for that to continue to grow in the future, we do need to have some new materials being created. So that is an interesting challenge, unless it goes beyond the unless materials it creates it. So that was one I thought about, by the way. Sometimes you're sitting around just thinking about stuff and it's interesting. I was thinking, how do I acquire new information? And the way I acquire new information is I go read articles, I read books, I read a ton of stuff. 
And then I say, I think this is valuable. I don't think that's valuable. And then I put it together and say, here's what I'm thinking. And now I'm looking at this generative AI who goes out and scans the environment and pulls these things and then creates something new. It doesn't have the cognitive processing that I have at this point, but it's in the early stages. We have some folks who are very concerned out there, especially in European countries that are starting to put some guardrails out because at the point that it keeps grabbing stuff and then generating and then it grabs the stuff it generated, then it's going to be interesting. But as of right now, I just read another article. I think it was yesterday that they're going out and grabbing the most popular or most frequently written things and then putting it down as if that is right. The way that you might prioritize as a human with an expertise in something is going to be really different than a system that's prioritizing based on popularity or like how current something is, like when it was last published. That's a really different value system that really changes priorities. Yeah, and I think it changes how we teach. I think the way we teach is going to fundamentally shift because we're going to have to work with students with all these things being available and explain to them and talk to them about the learning process and the value of the learning process. And keep in mind, this isn't just about chat GPT writing papers. Everybody's freaked out about that right now. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that you could get fresh, cleanly written papers that have not been plagiarized at all. We'd have been able to do that for 20 years. They're paper mills. I could either write away or contact somebody and say, please write me a 10-page paper on Descartes. And they would write it. I could turn that in. What actually has happened recently is that everybody can do it even those who can't afford to have a paper written at $10 a page or whatever it's costing. And so equity comes back again. (laughs) Now we're an equal opportunity (laughs) cheater. So we have to be careful with that. But I think the way we teach is going to change because all that information is going to be available, kind of like the internet on hyperspeed. And then what do you do with that? It's going to be really intriguing. I think it's an exciting time. So Todd, this episode's going to come out right at the beginning of the semester. So you're saying we need to be thinking about how to change our teaching. ChatGPT is here. What are you doing for the fall differently? Well, I think the biggest thing is what we were just talking about. Looking more at the learning process, which has been a big thing for me for the longest time, is explaining and talking through the learning process. I can hand you all this information, but if I hand it to you, you don't learn. In fact, one of my favorite examples came from a friend of mine, and it was the gym. If you want to get in better shape, I could pay somebody to go do sit-ups for me. And then I could somehow log in the book at the gym that 100 sit-ups were done, use the passive voice there, and somebody else did them for me. I'm not going to get in better shape unless I do the sit-ups. So I have to do the work. I have to run, lift weights, do the sit-ups in order for me to be able to gain. We need to just turn that into a cognitive process. For our students to really gain cognitively, they have to do the work. And so I think more than ever, it's how do we convince students of that? And for the faculty members who say, well, that'd be great, but my students just want the grade. If that's the case, we have a bigger problem than whether or not some technology can write a paper for them. So how do we convince students that it is important for them to acquire the skills that we hope they get out of college? I think this is probably going to come down to the community building. It's been there forever. If you really want your students to do the work, the best thing you can do, in my view, and that's why I'm going to say, Rebecca, I don't think a lot for the way I teach has changed. You build a community, you build relationships, you talk to the students about importance of things. If you're sincere about that and they get that, then yes, there's going to be some students that are going to mess with the system. They have always been there. But you're also going to get a lot of students who will say, yeah, that's a good point. And then they'll do the work. I don't teach as many undergraduates as I used to. I'm teaching more faculty than ever because of being the faculty developer. But there were years that I would have to tell my students, don't put more time than this in on your paper. You have other classes. You need to do the work in the other classes because, and I'm telling you, I am very proud of this. My students would spend a ton of time on the stuff for my class because they didn't want to let me down. And I would say, you've already got an A. I'm proud of what you're doing. Please go work on your other classes. That kind of scenario happens when you build community. And I'm not saying it's easy. I would never say it's easy. And it's not going to happen for everybody. But it is the foundation of good teaching. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? There's just so much going on right now. I think that what's next for me is I am still in that headspace of coming kind of back from the pandemic. Anybody who says, yeah, but the pandemic's all over, (laughs) wait for November. 
we won't know. We're going to see. But I still think that's next is kind of thinking about how we teach and learn in this environment. So moving in that space, it's probably not surprising. I'm working on the next book here. One of the things I want to do now is the last couple of books that I've done have been pretty heavy books. And now I want to write something that's a little bit lighter. So it's going to be more of a quick guide with more narrative and having some fun. I love telling stories. I love having fun with people. So I'm going to try to create a book that's kind of like a science of learning and teaching as best, but really accessible and more of a story-based kind of way of looking at things. Who's your audience for that book? Anybody will read it. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime I write anything, I have to have the audience firmly in mind and think about who am I talking to. And I really believe there is a pretty big overlap with students and faculty who don't know specific things. And I'm not saying this in a mean way toward any of my faculty colleagues at all, but there's a lot of people who aren't taught about things like long-term potentiation and deep sleep in terms of semantic memory and looking at depth of processing and those types of things. So the same type of thing we can say to a student, we know you shouldn't cram, but here's why you shouldn't cram. Faculty learn a lot from that as well. And so my audience for this book is going to be faculty and students. Students, because I think it'll be more fun to read about how to learn in a narrative form like that. And faculty, because it's more fun to learn when you read in that kind of a format for some people. We'll see. And if faculty design their courses to take advantage of what we know about learning, it can facilitate more learning. Wouldn't that be cool? We could just keep rolling, rolling. What a great amount of work. I mean, a huge amount of work that faculty do. They're hardworking folks that are just cranking away all the time. Number one, making their life a little bit easier by helping to understand things would be great. And just having a little bit more fun would be fun. Would be a nice way to go too. Hey, anytime you can save time so that we can have more play in our lives, the better. Yeah, just to do whatever you want to do. Yeah. And ending on a note of fun is probably a great way to end this. Well, it's always great talking to you, Todd. Thanks for chatting with us and going on the Wayback Machine. Oh, you know, I love the Wayback Machine. For those of you who don't know about that, you should check out the Wayback Machine. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.